Thank you, Mike. Please do uh, keep that passage open. That would be great. Page 1191. Shall we pray? Lord God, thank you uh, so much for uh, your word to us. Please would you uh, speak to us this morning by your spirit uh, through it, that we may understand afresh, understand anew uh, the wonders uh, that are found in your word and your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We get what we deserve. Almost everything in our culture tells us that. We get what we deserve. If we don't deserve it, we won't get it. So we open up our pay slips. Uh, At the end of the month, there's a tidy enough sum. And we think, yeah, I I worked hard for that pay. Uh, I deserve it. GCSE results arrive. Lots of good grades. And we think, yeah, I deserve that. I worked really hard on that coursework project for my child. (laughs) You're you're watching TV and the DFS sofa advert comes on. This leather sofa, half price, ends 5pm bank holiday Monday. Buy one sofa, get a carpet free. And we're thinking, if you're thinking straight, straight away we're thinking this is nonsense. This is price manipulation. There's no such thing as a free offer. There is no such thing as something for nothing. You don't get what you don't deserve. We're used to working on that principle, that we get what we deserve. Well, at the heart of this morning's passage is a wonderful, a revolutionary truth. Everything we're thinking about this morning flows out of verse 14. Do you see that? The grace... The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The wonderful, the revolutionary truth is this. In his grace, God gives freely what I do not deserve. In his grace, God gives freely what I do not deserve. Of of all the truths of the Christian faith, grace is probably the most important yet the most difficult truth to understand, to totally and truly understand. That certainly seems to have been the case here uh, in Ephesus. This is Paul's first letter to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's protege, the evangelist uh, in Ephesus, where Paul had planted and nurtured uh, the first church. Yet only seven years, seven years after Paul has left Ephesus, stuff has started uh, to go wrong. We saw last week in in verse 3 that false doctrines have crept into the church. And in verse 6 we see there is meaningless, meaningless talk. False teaching and meaningless talk. Not a great combination, a destructive combination. Paul must have been absolutely gutted. Gutted, gutted that the gospel which he had been entrusted with and which he carefully passed on as being distorted. And surely one of the main reasons for his disappointment would have been this. He knew for himself, he knew for himself the tremendous experience of the power of the gospel let loose. It had radically altered his life. What he'd heard from Christ had saved his life. He knows it's transforming its life-giving power. 
that rather than this beautiful gospel being preached, what do we have? Meaningless talk. So what does Paul do? He gives us his personal story. This section of chapter 1, this is not Paul losing the thread, going off on a tangent from his instruction to Timothy uh, to uh, restore order in the church. This is core to that instruction. This is Paul's no-holes-barred autobiography. Did, did you notice, as it was read, the number of times Paul uses the first-person singular in these verses? Just look down. I thank Christ Jesus, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and belief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. And on and on it goes up to verse 17. The person at a party who talks only about themselves is boring, rude and unattractive. But do you see here that Paul, as he talks about himself and gives us his story, Paul is the object, but God is the subject. God is the subject of all he is saying. Paul's aim is to say, look at what God did for me. This is what God does. Lose sight of God's grace, says Paul, and you'll be left with false teaching, meaningless talk, and an irrelevant church. As we look at grace, there are three points I want to draw out from this passage this morning. And the first point is this. God's grace overflows super abundantly. God's grace overflows super abundantly. That is wonderfully expressed in verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love, that are in Christ Jesus. One of the great things I find about having children, I've got three now, is the, is the uninhibited excitement that they often show. So you say, as I did over the summer, we're going to Legoland. Excitement explosion follows. Uh, good job, given the ticket price. And sometimes children, they simply can't come up with the words to express themselves. They don't have their language to say what they're feeling. So you end up with, oh, Daddy, I'm just so super, mega, super, duper happy. I'm just so happy. That sort of thing. Well, this is what Paul does here in verse 14. It's not really captured in our translation. But in describing God's grace, Paul is lost. He is lost for superlatives. It is beyond the description of normal language. So what Paul does is he makes up his own word. So in the original Greek, he essentially takes the word abundant, which itself is pretty good, isn't it? It speaks of overflowing, and adds effectively the word super, super in front of it. So in the original, really it's closer to saying, Paul saying this, the grace of God overflows super abundantly. Last October, we were travelling back from the West Country, and we ended up, as I think you always do for the West Country, in a hideous traffic jam. And we got stuck on the Somerset Levels, this kind of area of sunken land, uh, sunken bowl of land. And the only interesting part of crawling through the levels was seeing the evidence of the floods from earlier in the summer. So you had, you know, lines on buildings, this high, strange things in the middle of fields uh, that shouldn't be there. 
uh, those sorts of things. You probably remember uh, the pictures. The levels have been almost completely submerged, swamped, flooded, turned into a lake as far as the eye could see as the river burst their banks and swamped the land in a torrent of water. That is the kind of picture that Paul has here of God's grace. A grace so abundant that it bursts out in torrents. It overflows, it swamps, it submerges, it knocks you down, it washes you over, it washes you through. A grace that cannot be contained. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his undeserved blessing into people's lives. It is revolutionary stuff. And Paul uses himself to drive home just how revolutionary it is. This is our second point. God's grace is always undeserved. God's grace is always undeserved. Look at verse 12. This is Paul speaking in verse 12 about himself. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. When Paul says that he acted in ignorance and unbelief, he means that God had yet, not yet shown him who Jesus is. His eyes had not yet been open. He was blind and ignorant. But then God stepped into his life and opened his eyes to see who Jesus is. And do you see that Paul openly confesses to what he was like when he lived in ignorance? He confesses to three things, doesn't he, in verse 14. He was a blasphemer. That is, he's somebody who spoke openly against Jesus. As a Pharisee, he he would have thought he was upholding God's name in doing so, but in speaking openly against Jesus, he spoke openly against God. Second, he was a persecutor. He vigorously persecuted uh, the young church. You've only got to read through uh, the book of Acts to see what Paul, as, as Saul, as we saw in that video, did. This was a man who went from house to house, dragging Christians out, throwing them into prison. A man who was bent on destroying the church. And third, we see he was a violent man, he says. This is a man who, we're told, breathed out murderous threats against Christians. Who was it who approved of the stoning to death of Stephen? In Acts 8, a man full of faith in the Spirit, who just preached that the place to meet God is Jesus. It was Paul who approved. You know, Paul is like a cross, was like a cross between Richard Dawkins and an Islamic State militant. That was what he was like. That was a state of his ignorance and his depravity. And yet, what does Paul say? I was shown mercy. Mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin, if you think about it. Mercy is not being given what I do deserve. Not being given what I do deserve. Grace. Grace is being given freely what I don't 
deserve. Does Paul get what he deserves? No. Instead, he is freely given what he does not deserve. Paul receives God's mercy and grace. His goodness, love and kindness overflows super abundantly into Paul's life. This is what God does. This is God's heart. Not many of us will have a life story as dark as Paul's. Paul acknowledges that himself in verse 17, which we'll look at next week when he describes himself as the worst of sinners. But that is the point. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace into the lives of undeserving people, even people like Paul. This is what God famously did for John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader, an abuser of others, a blasphemer, a truly depraved man. Yet in a violent storm off the coast of Ireland, God met with Newton in his slave ship and flooded his life with undeserved mercy and kindness. And of course, later in his life, Newton coined these well-known words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The object of God's grace is always undeserving. And you see, the purpose of God's law, used properly, is to show us that we are undeserving because the law is like a mirror. We look at the law and it reflects back to us the mess and the dirt of our lives. It shows us what we're really like. Do you see that in verse 8? Look at verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is, the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, that is those who don't treat their fathers and their mothers like they should. For murderers, that is those who hate other men. For the sexually immoral, for those preaching homosexuality, that is those who misuse their own body misuse the bodies of others. For slave traders, those who use and abuse others. Liars and perjurers, people who don't tell the truth. Surely if we have any sense of ourselves being deserving, or beautiful, or superior, well at least I'm not like him or her. We only need to hold up the mirror of God's law to our lives. And as we look at the perfect and pure standards of God, the mess and dirt of our lives is plain to see. And yet the wonderful truth is this, God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace and kindness into the lives of people like you and me. People who are undeserving, The person who has cheated on their husband or their wife. 
whether in the flesh or in the mind. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace into that person's life. The person who's addicted to pornography and racked by guilt and shame. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace into that person's life. The person who gets by in life by subtle lies and half-truths, sometimes an iron fist in a velvet glove, that dishonesty at work that no one seems to pick up on, the white lie in the marriage that seems to make life a bit more straightforward. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace into that person's life. The person who has trampled on others to get what they want. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace into that person's life. The person who uses Facebook to gossip, to boast, abuse, to get one up, play with the reputation of someone else. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace into that person's life. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace into people's lives. What an extraordinary God. What an extraordinary and life-changing truth. That's my final point. God's grace changes lives. Just look again at verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you see what happens when the grace of God overflows into Paul's life? What happens? In the place of ignorant unbelief, you have what? Faith. And in the place of brutal hatred, what do you have? Love. It is a transformation, isn't it? This is the kind of regeneration that stems from someone who turns to Christ. Faith and love fill the person's life. And faith and love spring up from the person's life. When God's grace overflows into our lives, we start to understand God's faithfulness. We begin to grasp the extraordinary love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And so faith and love, they spring up like green shoots. One follows the other. Just think of some of the examples uh, from the Bible. Think of the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets by the well in John 4. Jesus says she's had five husbands, and the man she's currently with is not her husband. Jesus meets her, and the grace of God overflows into her life, and she becomes the first missionary to the Samaritans. Think of Peter, the disciple who three times disowned Jesus at that crunch moment when Jesus has been arrested and is on trial. What does the resurrected Jesus say when he meets him a few days later on the banks of Lake Galilee? Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep feed my sheep. And that is exactly what Peter goes on to do. God is in the business of dealing 
with failures. God is in the business of overflowing super abundantly his grace into the lives of undeserving people like you and me. Maybe you're here this morning and you fear somehow that God will reject you. How can God love me? How can God love me? If so, that is because you think that you get what you deserve. But that does not have to be true. Jesus died on the cross and rose again precisely so you do not have to get what you deserve. In his grace, God gives freely what I do not deserve. It is a liberating truth like no other. Is it a truth that you're willing to take hold of? Some of us here probably fear failure. We fear failure in our Christian lives. We're believers in Jesus, but somehow we still, still fear failure. We feel inadequate, perhaps we're tired, we're worn down. We feel low on morale. God won't use me, can't use me. It's not going to happen. So the right thing is just to hold back, just to carry on chugging along. If so, that is because you think that you get what you deserve. But through Jesus, God gives us freely what we do not deserve. I think if we truly grasp this truth, it will blow open the floodgates of our individual lives and our life together as a church here at Trinity, probably in more ways than we could ever imagine or comprehend. Here are just two thoughts as we end. If we understand God's grace, it will give us a willingness to fail because we will know the truth of God's commitment to us, his selfless love for us. He has appointed us to his service. He will give us strength. He will never write us off. That is not what God does. And secondly, we will say and we will live out, surely, that anyone is welcome in this church. The most unpleasant person, the person most unlike you, the person that has done or wants to do you maximum damage, the person you would not expect to find here, they would be welcome in this place. We want this church, don't we, to be a place of vibrant teaching and truth, meaningful talk and relevant to modern life. For that to be the case, surely the wonder, the wonder of God's grace that overflows super abundantly in Christ must be at the heart of all that we do and all that we are. Shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you for this great truth, the wonder of grace that is so hard to understand because it's not fair and we find unfairness difficult to understand. But we just thank you for the grace that you show to us in Jesus Christ, your love for us, your commitment to us, your desire for us to flourish 
in Jesus Christ. Lord, please would you take these truths deep into us, that we may understand afresh what it means to receive the unconditional, free grace of Jesus Christ, that our lives would truly be filled with love and faith. And Lord God, that we would, as a church, encourage and build one another up in that. And see wonders happen here because of the wondrous goodness that you show to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.